It's time for Cadillac on Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac on Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. On today's program, our focus is milestones. First, we will check in with a public health expert on the status of COVID-19 in our community. A year ago at this time, the COVID picture looked promising, only to see the Delta variant take hold and severely impact our community and healthcare system in the months of August and September of 2021. A year later, the COVID picture again looks promising during this time of the year, and hopefully it will remain that way. Also today, the milestone is the 20-year anniversary of Grace Clinic a free health care clinic that has provided valuable services to those in need all throughout the Tri-Cities area. And as we speak, a celebratory open house is underway at the Grace Clinic operation in Kennewick. We will connect with two of the leaders of Grace Clinic in just a little bit. But first to the phones, we go and connect with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, we are coming out of our first holiday weekend, which historically has been a concerning during COVID time. As we move past Memorial Day, what does the COVID picture look like today? Well, Jim, you know, again, looking over not just this past week, but the weeks before, we're continuing to see our data creep up, 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 which is not the direction we want to go. And when we look at, at the data, it doesn't, it doesn't match necessarily what we were seeing in January because that was a pretty horrific time. But looking back to this weekend and Memorial and comparing it to one year ago, we know that Memorial Day is certainly a time where lots of family gatherings happen. Um, one safety aspect is oftentimes these family gatherings happen outside where the airflow is good and it does decrease your chance of exposure to COVID in those group environments. So, of course, we'll be watching the data very, very closely over the next few weeks to see exactly um, how that weekend has impacted our data. But when we look at, um, say, our testing at our two test sites, the CDC West test site, unfortunately, we are seeing an increase in the positivity rate In the last 14 days, they did 782 tests with a 23.63% positivity rate. And so that's creeped up a little bit. And then the Richland test site, same thing. Um, They did 415 tests with a 20.96 positivity rate. And again, that one has creeped up also. So when we look at that data, we look at the number of positive PCR tests, and then we look at the wastewater sampling that is done um, that tells us what how much um, virus is being detected in the wastewater all of these are indicating that our, our rate of infection seems to be creeping back up again will we mirror a year ago hard to say it really does depend on variants subvariants uh, is something new going to come along unexpected that we don't really see on on our immediate horizon and that could totally change the picture of what our data looks like so i guess you know the message would be um keep an eye on the data yes it's going up we're not in historical highs by any means but we're definitely heading into a little bit of area of concern and um, as we also see a little bit of the hospitalization creep up a, a bit 
um, it's, it's not the time to let our guard down. Even though the weather's good, we're outside, we're gathering in a much safer environment, which is outside, we still need to be extremely cautious when we're inside at those group gatherings. And between this upcoming weekend and the following weekend, it's graduation weekend. And a lot of large group gatherings, a lot of indoor gatherings, again, it's, it's a message to the community that now is not the time to let our guard down, keep up the good work, let's get through all of these holidays without seeing our data go up to dangerous levels like we have in the past. It's almost like a way of life as we, as we move forward with the level of vaccination probably as high as it's going to get continuously until the next round of boosters happen. And as you say, just monitoring all this data, knowing that life events will be continuing to happen. So is this just kind of our new life? And I think that's something important for us to accept is COVID. We've said it time and time again, it's not going to go away anytime soon. We don't know what new variant or subvariant is going to come along. And so we need to keep our masks handy. We need to not forget all those mitigation strategies. And, and we individually and as family units need to consider what are we going to do in any given moment to keep ourselves as safe as possible. Look at the data. Watch the data. Make a decision for yourself and your family uh, what you're going to do, not only to protect yourself, but those vulnerable populations that you come in contact with. You know, this is a time that grandparents come into town or you go to visit grandparents to celebrate their grandchild's graduation. And we are seeing a little bit of activity in the long-term care facilities with, with several outbreaks happening. And that's an extremely vulnerable population. The good news is we, we do see some fairly high vaccination rates in that population, but we are still continuing, unfortunately, to see some um, disease activity and we just hope that people are getting vaccinated getting boosted so if they do catch uh, covid at least they're not as likely to be hospitalized or or die if they have a vaccine on board but that includes getting those boosters and when we do look at the long-term care facilities um, it seems like getting those boosters can make the difference whether getting severe ill mild ill or not being symptomatic at all Quick question for you on that booster uh, issue. I, I know people that I'm acquainted with have elderly family members who have not gotten that second booster. And, and in some cases, it's I don't know if the attitude is nonchalant or they're just figuring, well, I've gotten two vaccinations plus one booster. Why do I need another? What, how do you respond to that? What's your advice? Well, our advice is do what science says is best for your immune system, and that's to get vaccinated. And we know that the vast majority of our vaccines that we use throughout the lifespan do require initial vaccines and then some boosters. So boosting your immune system is not something that is unique to the COVID vaccine. That's why an annual flu vaccine is recommended. That's why we see series of vaccines. Majority of time you get them in infancy and early childhood, and, and you forget that you had a vaccine series of three, four, or five vaccines. And then you look to boosters after that. Um, that's what we do with tetanus. You get your early childhood series, and then throughout your life, you need to get boosted 
because tetanus is an organism that lives in the soil and we come in contact with it quite often and you need to be protected. You need to keep your immunity boosted. And the same thing holds true with COVID. We know we need to keep our vaccinations up to date. We need to keep our boosters on board so that we are as protected as possible from actually catching the disease and having a severe outcome. And on that topic, relative, you touched on the long-term care facilities, the vulnerable older population, which do thankfully have high vaccination rates, but the immunocompromised who may not be able to physically get a vaccine, is that another area of concern as you talk about this potential of exposure of transmission to people in this population? Right. Those that are most vulnerable are certainly the ones that we want to get that vaccine series complete in. And there are uh, vaccines happening in these long-term care facilities, and there are a variety of ways for people who are at high risk and, say, homebound that can get um, vaccinated. But it's also extremely important to remember those of us who can get vaccinated are out and about. We need to get vaccinated so we're less likely to catch this um, disease and then pass it on to somebody who is much more vulnerable. We know the older we get the less we respond to vaccines. So even the elderly who do get vaccinated, um, they don't have as robust immune response. That's why we need so many of those boosters. But we also need to do that added protection of vaccinating and cocooning these high-risk people by cocooning them with vaccinated people. So as we, we get ready to go to a break, if you would, just remind folks if, say, Jim Hall gets a test positive tomorrow, and I am not really experiencing any symptoms. What What's the basic protocol that I should follow? Well, if you test positive, we want you to stay home. <laughs> You've got to stay home for at least, um, you know, five days with a mask on. If you're still not well after five days, you're going to want to stay home a little longer, keep protecting those around you from catching it, and certainly letting those people who you potentially exposed know that you tested positive so that they can start watching for symptoms. That's what majority of businesses are doing with regard to employee exposures, and it's exactly what we should do in our personal life, too. Visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District, we have one more segment to talk with her about some other public health issues, and we'll do that right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic On Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. We are visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. And our country has been riddled with gun violence in recent weeks. A grocery store in Buffalo, New York, an elementary school shooting at a rural town in Texas, and just today, a shooting at a hospital campus in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, Heather, we've tapped your expertise on COVID, but your public health expertise goes, I know, much broader than that. If you would from your perspective, give us some public health perspective on the state of gun violence in our country. Well, Jim, I know we've been through a lot as a nation recently, and and certainly over the last few years as we've seen an increase in these types of situations happening. And we know that, unfortunately, children end up 
in these very bad, very dangerous situations, whether it's what happens at the schools or, you know, unfortunately, parents, family members, people who are not careful with their firearms at home and allow children to access them. And we've we've heard of horrific stories where children have accidentally shot themselves. And I think um, there really is no one sentence, one single answer. I know we look for that that simple solution and that one statement that will encompass everything we need to do to turn around what seems to be happening. But I think, you know, from the public health perspective, it's a multifaceted approach that needs to be taken. We know there is certainly a mental health component. There's just so many things that need to be considered in the United States in how we address what is happening, especially to our most vulnerable. It's the children in our community that are emotionally really struggling with this right now. And I just hope that dialogue continues and that people, whatever side you're on of this topic, could stop and take time to listen to each other and have conversation because it's our kids who are counting on us as the adults to make those decisions that are gonna keep them as safe as, as possible. And we have to be able to talk about it. We have to be able to agree sometimes to come to conclusions that maybe is a little bit different than what you had hoped for. But we need to keep the conversations going, not let us stop thinking about how do we how do we stop what is happening and keep working to improve the situation because it certainly is, you know, from my public health perspective, a public health crisis right now. And one of the things that, that we can, that, that I think you brought up an important point is just that depending upon your perspective and your views, there are certain things regardless. We have to realize at this point in 2022, there are guns in our society. So, and I know Cadillac and area businesses, the health district, and others are are partnering to put you know to provide uh, lock boxes for for storing safely storing guns and things like that is it, it is it that and more that needs to be done oh it's that and a, a lot more and i think that's where we need to get community partners together to have serious in-depth conversations that actually come up with some results not just talk we need to start making some specific plans and then helping guide families how to be as safe as possible, you know, back to the firearms in the home, assuring that families have access to equipment they need, gun safes, uh, gun locks, whatever they need in their home so that the children are protected as absolutely possible. I asked this of Dr. Person last week when, when she joined us on this, on, we talked about this topic and of course, it was literally a day after the shooting in Texas at the school. And I tapped into her physician training as a pediatrician. And I guess I would ask you the same as a nurse and who works with children as well to, to maybe reinforce what, it, what do you tell a parent of a, an elementary school child today, whether you're second, third, fourth grade, that the age group of these, these children that, that were killed last week, What's the, what should parents be doing at this point? I think parents need to really be listening to these kids. 
listening to all of our kids, whether they're directly involved or there's a lot of vicarious trauma as your little kids are listening to the news and may start to worry, may start to have thoughts of their own. Am I safe at school? And again, that's where parents, grandparents, aunties, uncles, those trusted important people in that child's life need to start conversations. And and it really is about thinking what your kid is watching on TV, listening, and then maybe gently chatting with them a little bit about how they're feeling, what's going through their mind, what scares them, and then trying to, in your best way possible, assure these children that all the adults in their life, the teachers, the school administrators, are doing everything possible to keep them safe, and most important, to let them know that they are important and they are loved and they are cherished and people are working very hard to try to keep them as safe as possible. But you've got to talk to your kids. You've got to listen to your kids and give them the opportunity. Sometimes we as adults like to do a lot of talking and we like to tell our kids how they should feel. And sometimes we just need to stop talking, ask some questions and find out exactly how they're feeling and then address it at that time. You know, I never thought I'd ask this question. We spent so much time the past two plus years talking about the public health emergency of a pandemic that's been going on. And you just described, and I think people would agree that we're in a public health crisis. It's There's a lot of public health issues that we need to get our arms around in this country. And, and there certainly are. And, you know, our public health workforce has been through quite a stressful last couple of years And I know we're looking forward to many more years of hopefully improved situation, improved funding, so that we can help address even more of these crises, more of these problems that are facing our communities. You know, as we do our community needs assessment and we realize exactly what is important to our community, then we as a public health agency need to help gather our you know, our, our peers around the community, those interested parties and businesses and organizations on just how are we going to address what our community sees as the biggest needs. And finally, maybe just a concluding point from from your view is is with these, t- you know, these major, major issues and, and they're not easily solved. But I think to your point is, you know, there there are actions that we all can take to try and help improve the situation. So regardless, if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're a student, if you're a business person, whatever it might be, everyone has a role and can make it help make a difference in a positive way, right? And I think that's so true. Um, You may think you're only one person, but, you know, there's a lot of one, one person individuals in a group, and it's that group effort of individuals that really can make change. And it's that group effort of coming to consensus, coming up with ideas on how to improve the health of our community, whether it be gun violence, disease, poverty, mental health issues, substance abuse, whatever the issue is, it's going to take a concerted effort of really dedicated, caring people. And we have a lot of those in in our jurisdiction here. Benton Franklin County has a lot of people who are 
invested in this community and do want what's best for for our community. You raise a really good point, and I think that's a, a nice way for us to end is, yes, there is a lot to do. This health needs assessment, I think the most recent one indicated access to care, and that includes all kinds of medical care, but certainly mental health was one of those as well. And the other one was childhood obesity, and I'm sure those three are probably going to be at or near the top this time around. But as you say, maybe a concluding comment that, that this community is poised with with a lot of a lot of uh, resources available to help bring this bring this, uh, this problem to bear and, and address it uh, appropriately. You're, you're exactly right. We have a lot of agencies, a lot of people in the community who who want to see change, want to see improvement happen, and um, hopefully over the next few years we'll start to see the coming together of these groups and coming up with ideas that really will make change. Uh, to improve the health and the life of of all the people in the community. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. As always, thanks so much for your time. More information on COVID, on gun violence, resources available in the community at bfhd.wa.gov. Back with Grace Clinic leaders right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac On Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And 20 years ago this month, in the basement of a church in Pasco, an organization named Grace Clinic began offering medical services to patients who did not have health insurance or access to health care. Today, Grace Clinic is a thriving free clinic providing medical, dental, and mental health services to the same population of patients. It is a vital part of our community's health care system, and without it, these patients would merely just not likely seek any care at all. We're pleased to welcome to our program today the volunteer chief executive of Grace Clinic, Mr. Mark Brault. And Mark, uh, as you hear me correlate from 20 years ago to today, uh, what goes through your mind? Well, you know, I, uh, I joined the board in 2006. So in early 2006, we were still in the basement of the church. And uh, at that time, we saw patients for four hours on Saturdays. We did uh, medical, medical care only. And, you know, since that time have been able to, to grow the breadth of the services and the number of people that we take care of. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty striking difference between where we were 20 years ago and where we are today. And the fact that this is a so-called free clinic, the fact that, you know, I know you get some sort of funding, but the vast majority is through community support financially as well as community uh, support uh, in the investment of time by volunteers, whether they're medical or otherwise. Right. We have we have more than 200 active volunteers, and the volunteers do the bulk of the work. We have a small paid staff that uh, facilitates that, but... Uh, uh, the, the clinic is completely a community endeavor. Our funding comes out of the community. Our volunteers come out of the community. Uh, it's a, an incredible testament to what can happen when a group of people come together to, uh, uh, to take care of other folks in the community. I think it's important that we should go back to that very first 20 years ago. And there are two physicians that were 
the the impetus for Grace Clinic beginning, Dr. Cheryl Snyder and Dr. Carol Endo, I believe. But talk a little bit about their vision and, and how it has evolved into what it is today. Well, the the genesis of the clinic actually goes back to the December before we opened, uh, so December of 2001. And the, the two of them were having coffee one evening. They had had, they'd been on a medical mission and uh, were back. They had gotten together. They were talking about their experience. And they said, you know, what if we could do something here uh, like what we did when we were in Honduras? And uh, from there, <clears throat> the, the idea grew and, and developed, and they they involved other people in uh, in planning it, and the clinic opened uh, about six months later, and it was you know it was based on what they had seen when they did this medical mission and and asking that question what if you know what if we could do something, and you know knowing uh, especially uh, Dr. Snyder who was a was an ER doc. And saw people coming into the ER who don't have insurance, and you know the the reality is that's not the place to get routine care. It's not only the most expensive place, but uh, for an awful lot of people, especially those with a with a chronic disease, that the ER is not equipped to help them manage that disease. And that's not a criticism of the ER. It's simply a recognition that that's not what they're trained for. And so uh, she saw uh, a significant need there, and. Uh, uh, the, the two of them were absolutely driving force to make this happen. Now, you know, one of the other interesting pieces of the history is that uh, 15 years ago, uh, Dr. Endo moved to Portland to be closer to family. And about uh, 12 or 13 years ago, Dr. Snyder moved to Yakima to be involved in the development of uh, Pacific Northwest University, the, the medical school there. So neither of them have been involved in the clinic for a long time, but what they got started has uh, continued on to this day. And and so impressive it is. And and I know you and and the current leadership of of the of the organization are to be commended because <laughs> operating a healthcare facility is not easily done with all the regulatory issues that need to be done, and not to mention trying to just, you know, find the patients, find the people to care for these people. So there are a lot of moving parts to make this happen. There are a lot of moving parts. Um, and, and uh, you know, in the, in the early days in particular, where we operated on a walk-in basis, so people would come, and and we'd take care of as many of them as possible. And, and most days we were able to take care of everybody. But the uh, uh, when you have a, a workforce that's principally volunteer, uh, you have variability from day to day in the size of your workforce. You have uh, uh, patients who come on a walk-in basis, and so there's variability from day to day in in the demand. And those aren't always in sync. You know, some days you have uh, you have much greater demand than you have workforce, uh, but but there are you know there are a lot of moving parts. It's a reasonably complex organization when you're doing medical, dental, and mental health services, uh, and and especially uh, working primarily with volunteers. But um, uh, we're able to pull it off most of the time very well. Um, you know, it uh, it has its moments, but uh, 
but we have a lot of people who help make it happen. And some of those people I know in the medical professional side are physicians and nurses and health professionals that are donating their time and service, right? And then I'd also like you to right. address not only that, but there's also training opportunities for uh, physician residents here in the Tri-Cities to get experience themselves as they work their way to becoming physicians. Yeah, we have a, you know, we have a large group of uh, volunteer clinicians. That's physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, dental, dentists, dental assistants, uh, mental health professionals um, who, who volunteer their time. But, but additionally, uh, the clinic plays a very significant role in medical education. Um, as you mentioned, we have uh, the third-year residents uh, for both the Cadillac and the TRIOS residency program, all who rotate through here. So these are, these are physicians in their last year of training um, that each do a, a four-week community medicine rotation here. Uh, a, a number of them do uh, an elective rotation as well. And uh, but we also have uh, nursing students and medical students and nurse practitioner students and dental hygiene students and counseling interns. Uh, so the, the clinic plays a very significant role in medical education. And it's a, uh, an enormously valuable experience for those people because their exposure to an underserved population uh, makes them better prepared uh, when they when they go out in whatever form of practice they're doing. I have just uh, one more question to ask, and I want to let our listeners know that if you hadn't heard, Mark has been recognized for his contributions to the Tri-Cities community as the 2022 Tri-City in the Year, and for that we say congratulations and well-deserved, Mark. But I, I want to, I know you're, you would deflect to the, the people that of Grace Clinic and all of the efforts that you've been part of during your career. But I would just conclude by asking you about Grace Clinic. What about it that makes you the most proud? Um, you know, what makes me the most proud, We uh, it, it's incredibly important to us that we do this work in a fashion that, uh, uh, that protects people's dignity. Um, you know, when, when you have a need and you have to ask for help. That's uncomfortable. And and so we want to we want to make it uh, less uncomfortable. And and you know we regularly have patients that tell us about the the way they felt cared for and listened to and and valued. And that is uh, without a doubt what uh, uh, what is the most valuable to me. Well, thanks to you for your service and all of the volunteers of Grace Clinic. We're going to visit with uh, the clinic director of Auntie Jackson in a moment. But if you'd like more information on Grace Clinic before we go to break, you can visit gracecliniconline.org. Our thanks to Mark Brault. Back with more right after this. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac on Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And we're shining the light today on Grace Clinic. 
a volunteer-free clinic at the Tri-Cities that provides medical, dental, and mental health services to members of our community who do not have health insurance or limited access to health care. And back to the phones, we go to say hello to Avante Jackson, the clinic director at Grace Clinic. And Avante, we just visited with your colleague, Mark Brault, and got some real great historical perspective on Grace Clinic. I'd like to spend some time with you, if you would. Just talk a little bit about the day-to-day operations. What do people have access to when they come to Grace Clinic? Well, thank you, Jim, for having us today um, as we celebrate our 20th anniversary today. Uh, We have a really great uh, setup here at the clinic. So when people come in, they have the opportunity to be seen for their medical needs, but there's also the opportunity to receive dental services and mental health services. There is a special collaboration between our medical and mental health teams for those um, who have uh, struggles on on both sides of that equation. And so we're able to collaborate between our medical and mental health team to help address some of those issues. So it's really great to be almost a one-stop shop for people as they are coming in um, because we can address medical, dental, and mental health all in one facility. How does someone get access to Grace Clinic? Do you call and make an appointment? or How does that walk us through that process, if you would, real quickly? Well, just like the rest of the world, COVID had a big impact on how we operate. Uh, It used to be that people would just walk in for screening. Uh, What we do now is primarily phone screening. So we just ask people to call the clinic. Our number is 509-735-2300. Call the clinic, and uh, we will have them spend a few minutes with one of our screeners. And it's really just six questions that we're asking people, and it's about where they live. We want them to live here in our community in Benton, Franklin counties, and we also service Burbank, include people who live there. Uh, We uh, are checking income because we do serve those who have uh, income that falls at 200% of the federal poverty guidelines. Um, We use that as as a scale. And then we also uh, want to serve those who are uninsured. So we look for people who don't have access to health care because they don't have health insurance. And so that's the third criteria. So the questions we ask all relate to those um, three areas. And then once they are screened, um, then we will schedule them for an appointment. Generally speaking, we can get people in within a week. So a new patient appointment within a week is a pretty good thing. Uh, So that's how the process goes for them. A week, that's pretty amazing. I was just, that was going to be kind of my next question because when we visited with Mark, he, he touched on there are times when demand and supply of staff uh, don't match up adequately. So it does create those issues that you said. But the fact that you can get someone and get an appointment within a week is, is, is really a lot to be said. Now, that's on the medical side. I will say that. And on the dental side, we do have a capacity issue, so it can take a bit longer um, to get a dental appointment. Um, But if it's a medical need, generally we can get people in within a week. But as Mark said very accurately, it really depends on who we have um, staffed at any given time. And that's why having such a solid team of volunteer providers is so important because it helps us to shorten those wait times. Uh, So that's one thing that really drives our ability to get people in quickly. And we find that that's that's important. If someone has a need right now, the quicker we can address it, then the better uh, outcomes you're going to get, of course. And so we're really focused on trying to get people in as quickly as possible. And what happens then if, if if the 
the illness or the the issue that they're dealing with is serious enough that requires hospitalization, is then 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 that requires the the coordination, the further coordination to to get that taken care of. Yeah. Now we have a very uh, solid. Uh, referral system. So we will refer patients if there's an issue that goes beyond the scope of what we can do here in the building. Uh, What we do like to remind people, though, is that anything that happens within our facility at 800 West Canal Drive is free of charge. We don't charge for the services we provide here. Once we have to get into referrals, then we do have to start navigating the costs that can be associated with that. And there are a number of really great resources for people if they have a need um, that uh, that is too expensive for them, that they it, it requires a cost that they don't have. Um, so we really do have to look into what those other resources are in order to be able to help them with that. Before we let you go, I would like to have you address uh, folks that are listening, whether they're adult age or even high school age, what opportunities are available and how would they go about uh, what kind of opportunities to volunteer are there? Uh, what are your, what's your most pressing need right now? You know, you can go to our website any time of the year, gracecliniconline.org, and we have a volunteer tab there. Um, and there's a place where you can submit an application, and that really kind of triggers the whole process. So any time of the year, uh, if you have time available, that would be the first step to take. Then um, I want to say a quick word about students uh, because we're coming into the summer months. So there may be nursing students who are at home for the summer uh, or someone who's um, pre-med home for the summer. This is a really great opportunity to get some clinical experience. So what you would do is just go to the website, as I mentioned, uh, gracecliniconline.org, fill out that form, and then there are a number of ways that you can get experience, uh, some administrative opportunities. If you're already, say, in a nursing program, we would have an opportunity potentially for some um, hands-on uh, patient care under the supervision of one of our registered nurses. So there's just a lot of different ways to get experience in the clinical setting. Uh, we have a few students uh, right now, or I should say they're new medical students. They've just been accepted to medical school, but they've been with us for several years preparing to go into medical school. So they gained a lot of clinical experience being here. So those are just some unique ways that people have been able to volunteer with us and then also further their own personal uh, aspirations. So we encourage people just to apply, and then we go from there and figuring out what's a good fit for them based on their background. Well, congratulations on 20 years of Ante Jackson. Again, those two numbers and contact points, gracecliniconline.org, or the phone number is area code 509 735 Two three zero zero. Our congratulations to everyone at Grace Clinic and all of the people who work so hard to make it happen. Thanks to you for listening. We'll talk again next week.